Well, good morning. Um, uh, my name is Todd, and uh, yeah, we're going to be looking this morning. We're continuing our series um, through the book of Galatians. We're coming to chapter two this morning, and um, I was thinking about this this morning, kind of after I'd finished um, writing my sermon and sort of thinking about some of the things that are in it. And I was thinking about like, um, you know, when we watch like a movie or a TV show, sometimes there are like these warnings at the beginning um, that, that warn you as to like the content of what you're about to watch. And so I felt like maybe I should give a warning this morning. Um, so, so here's the sermon warning, which is that this sermon is going to contain, um, uh, um, descriptions. There it is that this sermon is going to contain descriptions of smoking a couple of times. I, it just happened that way. So you've, you've now been warned. Um, so we're looking at chapter two and, um, as we, as we come to that, I want to talk about, um, uh, as, we, as we kind of prepare to hear the text, um, uh, talk about misunderstandings, um, or really more to the point, misrepresentation. Because, um, you know, misunderstanding is sort of accidentally getting something wrong. Misrepresentation is getting it wrong on purpose. Um, so I read an article this week about um, an American actress named Jessica Chastain. Some of you guys maybe know who she is, maybe you don't. I'm not going to explain she is. She's just a, a Hollywood actress. Um, but there was this um, news article and the headline of the article says, um, Jessica Chastain shopped at Target to get into character as a normal person for her new movie. Um, now, if you don't know what Target is, Target is a kind of this sort of mid-scale um, uh, discount department store in the U.S. So it's, I, I, would, I feel like it's probably comparable to like Marks and Spencer. Um, so, so this like famous celebrity shopping at Target um, to, to, to feel like a normal person, to get in character to play a normal person. Um, now, as soon as this like, article is published, this is basically, they just yanked some stuff from an interview and then sort of created this article out of context and this really, really misleading headline. Um, and so she went on Twitter to respond to it because basically she's like, you know, you've completely missed the point um, of this thing. She's like, I didn't go shop at Target to like, you know, pretend to be a normal person. She's like, I actually shop at Target. She's like, it's a, like she said, she's like, it's a great place to get Christmas decorations. Um, she's like, the thing that was different and unique about this is that she's making a movie um, that is trying to sort of peel back some of like all the layers of sort of, you know, fake that go into movies. You know, the movies we watch are these highly produced things where, you know, people who are portraying normal people we're supposed to identify with, you know, they have stylists, you know, hairstylists and makeup stylists and wardrobe people, and, and they wear, you know, just these super expensive clothes that are supposed to look like normal clothes. And so for this movie, the director was like, we want to get rid of all that. And he's like, so I just want you to go buy your own clothes for your character. So she went to Target and she bought clothes for her character. And she said, so what, what was different about this is not that I went shopping at Target. I do that all the time, but I got to buy clothes for a character that I'm playing in a movie. And I don't often get to do that. Um, and so it seems like kind of this minor discrepancy. And yet, this minor inaccuracy, it completely changes the nature of the story, right? It, it changes how we understand a human being and her character. Um, it's not just the particulars of the story. It's actually about a person. And so she wanted to set the record straight. Um, she went straight on Twitter um, and addressed it directly in order to set the record straight. And so as we turn to Galatians chapter two, we, we see sort of that same kind of thing that's happening. False teachers are misrepresenting the gospel. They're misrepresenting Paul and what he preaches about the gospel. 
They're taking this issue of circumcision and they're making it central to the gospel. They're making it a gospel issue. And so in, in doing this, they're saying that Paul doesn't even really preach the gospel because he doesn't preach circumcision. And so what seems like a minor discrepancy, a minor inaccuracy on a, on a, on a secondary issue, it changes the message of the gospel. And so in order to set the record straight, Paul goes to Jerusalem so that he can address it directly with the leaders of the church there. And so if you would, um, we're on page um, 972 in the Pew Bibles. And so if you would follow along as, as I read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no, impartia God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. In the time that we have together this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts by the power of your word and the agency of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. In the name of Jesus, amen. So having freedom and living in that freedom can sometimes be two very different things, right? Sometimes our own fears, our own uncertainties can be things that hold us back. Um, if you're afraid of heights, you might not want to do that tour where you can climb to the top of the O2 arena, right? That might not be the thing you want to do. You might not want to ride the London Eye. You know, even though you're completely free to do those things, you might not want to do it because, you know, your, your own fear says, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, likewise, our own preferences, our, you know, the things we like or don't like, those things can limit our freedom. I personally don't really like hazelnuts. I'm not allergic to them. Um, they're not going to harm me in any way. Um, I just don't like the way they taste. So though I'm entirely free to eat hazelnuts, I, I choose not to. And in case you're wondering, that, that includes Nutella. Don't really like that either. Um, our freedom can also be limited by um, 
old habits or addictions. People who try to quit smoking, they often find this to be true. Because not only are they addicted to this substance, but they also have all kinds of rituals and routines in their life that are built around the activity of smoking. And so to quit smoking, it doesn't mean that you just give up cigarettes and, ah, you're done. It means that you have to completely change the pattern and the rhythm of your life. And if you've spent years of your life, every morning you, you wake up, you grab a cup of coffee, you go out on the front step, and you smoke a cigarette, and you drink your coffee, and you talk to your next door neighbor who's doing the same thing. Right? That, is a, that is a rhythm to your life. And if all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore, um, or, you, or you, you quit smoking, right? If you quit smoking, it, it brings an end to this ritual. Because without a cigarette, maybe the coffee just doesn't taste the same anymore. You might realize, I don't actually like coffee if I'm not having a cigarette with it. Or, you know, the warm puffs of smoke on a cool, crisp morning, maybe the air just feels different. And you just don't actually enjoy standing outside in the morning anymore. It's kind of cold. You just want to go inside. And if your neighbor is still smoking, right, it might be too difficult or too tempting to talk to him while you're trying to quit. And even after you've overcome just the the addiction to nicotine, to the substance, the rituals, the routines, the memories of your life as a smoker can make it really hard to live in freedom. Now, I've presented a a relatively sympathetic picture of a smoker because because I've been a smoker. and, And I know how hard it is to not just break the habit of smoking, but to give up the rituals and the routines that come with it. And so in a similar way, our first look at these false brothers in Galatians 2, 2.4, um, you know, they're called false brothers in Galatians 2.4, our first look at them, I think can and maybe should be sympathetic. For hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Generation after generation, circumcision had been the enduring sign of God's promise to rescue his people through famine, through wars, through exile, even currently in in, in this context, occupation by a bigger, stronger nation. Circumcision reminded God's people that he had not forgotten them, that he would keep his promises And so the problem for these false teachers is not that they had this love for circumcision, that that it had these rituals and these memories for them. The problem is, is that they don't know what to do now that God has actually kept his promises. That's where they're stuck. See, Jesus has come. He shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven. And so this means that the shedding of blood through circumcision but that's no longer required. The rituals, the routines, the memories of life as a circumcised people were making it hard, exceedingly hard for these false brothers to live in freedom. And so we might be sympathetic. We might understand why they want to cling to this, why it's so important to them. But Paul's warning and his response to them is very clear. Clinging to these rituals and routines threatens the gospel. It threatens the very thing that matters, the very thing that was promised in circumcision. Adding rules and requirements to the gospel 
threatens our freedom in Christ and it threatens the unity of the church. That's what's at stake in Galatians. So the first thing we're going to look at is adding rules and requirements to the gospel threatens our freedom in Christ. This is the central problem that Paul identifies with these false teachers. He says in verse four that they slipped in to spy out our freedom, freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. I mean, just think of the words he uses. They, they slipped in, right? It's this sneaky, untrustworthy kind of language so that they could spy out our freedom so that they might bring us into slavery, right? This is a, Paul describes this in hostile terms because he sees what's going on. This is a threat to the gospel. It's a, it's a threat to our freedom in Christ. Paul's point is that the Old Testament law in general, and then circumcision in particular, they were never meant to save us. These things weren't meant to save us. In Philippians 3, Paul says that if anyone, if anybody could have ever been saved by the law, it would have been him. And then he just lists how personally righteous he was as a faithful Jew. If anyone could have been saved by the law, it would have been him. But that was never the purpose of the law. Instead, the law shows us that we can't live in perfect obedience to God. We can't live in perfect relationship with God. The law shows us more than anything else that we need a Savior, that we desperately need a Savior. By design, by its very design, the law isn't enough. It points to Jesus. But by trying to add circumcision to the gospel, what these false teachers are saying is they're saying Jesus isn't enough. But Jesus has fulfilled the law. According to these false teachers, that isn't enough. Fulfilling the law isn't enough. So imagine if I poured for you a glass of milk. We're sitting at a table and and I set the glass on the table and I start pouring the milk. And I pour and I pour and I pour until it gets to the very top. And I stop right at that point where, I mean, it is, you could not put any more milk in the glass. It's sort of domed on the top a little bit. And it's just the surface tension around the edge of the glass that's keeping it from spilling over. Now imagine I just take the milk and I just dump a whole bunch more in. Do you have more milk if I do that? Not really. No, the glass is completely full. All you have now is a mess. All I've done by trying to add milk to a completely full glass of milk is make a mess. That's what these false teachers have done. By trying to add rules and regulations to the gospel, they haven't ended up with more of the gospel. All they've done is make a mess. They've made a mess of God's promises and what he has done. And here's the thing. This is the thing for us. We do the exact same thing. Every time we try to add our own rules and regulations to the gospel, because freedom in Christ feels, it feels like a dangerous thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is an impossibly high standard. That is a super big thing to be told to do. We immediately want to know, like, what what are the limits of that? What are the exceptions? Who counts as my neighbor and who doesn't? Who can I ignore? 
And so it feels a lot easier to say something like, well, Christians, Christians shouldn't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or go to movies or dance. You know, Christian women shouldn't wear, you know, two-piece bathing suits or they shouldn't wear yoga pants or they shouldn't be friends with people who do those things. Um, I don't know if the yoga pants thing was an issue here in the UK. That was like, that's like from a couple of years ago, but like there were some really angry men, um, Christian men on like Instagram and Twitter who just were really angry. They were just outraged about women wearing tight fitting workout clothes. Um, now culturally for one, that ship has just sailed. Um, um, but also Paul says that that kind of thinking that actually threatens our freedom in Christ because it's focused on the wrong thing. It's focused on an outward thing and not on our hearts. And so it's a subversive attempt to bring us back into slavery. It's an effort to force us to live under rules and regulations that cannot save us. The rules and regulations cannot save us and they never could. And so what that means is then we end up living our lives on this performance treadmill. It means that we're plagued with constant guilt Guilt, wondering if we have done enough to please God. But if you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, God is fully pleased with you because he's fully pleased with Christ. You're hidden in him. We can't add to the gospel by our behavior or by following new rules and regulations. Instead, Instead, in Christ, we can look at God's commands, these commands to love God with all of your heart and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we can see in those commands, freedom. There's freedom in those commands because we are in Christ. Freedom to live in gratitude, thankfulness to God for his kindness. Freedom to live in kindness to one another because of what Jesus has done for us. Right? We do these things. We love God with all of our hearts. We love our neighbors as ourselves, not to be right with God, but because we are right with God. Jesus has done that. He's made us right with God. And so secondly, then adding rules and requirements to the gospel, it threatens the unity of the church. And that's why Paul went to Jerusalem after 14 years of ministry, 14 years of traveling all over the ancient Near East and Asia Minor, 14 years of preaching the gospel in city after city, 14 years of planting churches in places like Syria and Cyprus and Galatia, 14 years of all of that. Paul now goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John. And why did he go? Because of this problem, this problem of circumcision, because he was deeply concerned about the damage that this message from these false teachers could do to the church. Paul says in verse two, he went because of a revelation. So that reiterates what, what he said about his authority as apostle at the very beginning of the letter, the gospel that Paul preaches, it came directly from Jesus himself. Likewise, Peter, James, and John, who Paul calls the pillars of the church. And in case you're confused and you're like, Cephas is mentioned in there, and that's just the Aramaic name for Peter. Same guy. Paul just swaps them in and out. Um, but 
Peter, James, and John, Paul calls them the pillars of the church. And they also received the gospel directly from Jesus. Peter and John were two of the 12 disciples, ones who followed Jesus around in his earthly ministry. And after Jesus's resurrection, they became apostles, powerful apostles for the early church. James was the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the letter of James that that we studied um, a few weeks ago. The brother of Jesus who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so if all of these men, Paul, Peter, James, and John, if all of them received the gospel directly from Jesus, not from anyone else, but directly from Jesus, then they should all be preaching the exact same thing. And so Paul went to Jerusalem to confirm this, right? He says, I received nothing from them. He wasn't going to get anything from them. He was going to confirm. Are we all preaching the same thing? And that's exactly what he found out. That's what happened. He says they received him and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. As soon as they met together, they, you know, they understood that, yes, we're all preaching the same thing here. We're all preaching the same gospel, the same Jesus. And Paul even gives us this very relevant case study with regards to, to Titus, who he mentions in verse three. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Right? Titus is, he's not Jewish. He's not, you know, he, he's not a Jewish Christian. Somebody who grew up Jewish would have been circumcised and then later became a Christian. He's, you know, you know, he's, he's a Greek, just the broad term for a Gentile. And if the pillars of the church, if they had been preaching a different gospel, a different gospel, then they would have insisted that Titus be circumcised. If they were preaching what the false teacher said they were preaching, they would have insisted that Titus be circumcised. That's exactly what the false teachers were saying back in Galatia. They were saying that the gospel required circumcision. They're saying that the Jerusalem church taught this and that it was Paul who had corrupted the gospel. And so by going directly to Jerusalem, Paul sets the story straight. He confirms like, no, we're all preaching the same thing here. And it matters because this twisting of the gospel threatens to destroy the unity of the church. If these false teachers had their way, there would be two different gospel messages for two different groups of people. To the Jews who had been circumcised, the gospel says, Jesus has fulfilled the law's demands. He set you free and your sins are forgiven. But to Gentiles, the message would be, you must first be circumcised in order to make yourself presentable to God. And then you can receive freedom and fulfillment in the gospel. One message offers you Jesus fully, completely, no strings attached. The other message offers you rules and regulations, terms and conditions, T's and C's for the gospel. One message proclaims salvation in Jesus because of what he has done. The other one proclaims a kind of self-salvation based on what you have done or what you're willing to do. And so the result would be a divided church. Instead of one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, the church would have been split into two, cut off from one another and ultimately cut off from the gospel. 
if there's no unity in the church, then all of Paul's efforts would be in vain. That's what he means. All my running would be in vain. All these churches I've planted, if, if, if there's not one gospel, then all this is in vain. And the church would be left a confused and muddled mess. But instead, what Paul finds in Jerusalem is complete agreement in the gospel. That the message of Jesus is one and the same. That the promise of the gospel is one and the same. That the application of the gospel, well, that might change. But never, ever its content. See, kind of what's happened with the false teachers is they've, they've, they've confused application with the message. The gospel can apply differently based on who we are, our circumstances, all these kinds of things. But the content never changes. The apostles agree that just as Peter was called to preach to the Jews, Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles. And the result of all of this is a bigger church, not a smaller church, a bigger church, a larger fellowship. Circumcision began as a promise to Abraham. We read that this morning in, in Genesis 17. A promise that God would make Abraham into a great nation and that through him all the nations on earth would be blessed. And God kept his promise to Abraham. The Jews represent that great nation and the gospel fulfills that promise. And the Gentiles represent all the nations of earth that will be blessed. And the gospel fulfills that promise. In Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles become children of Abraham, not by circumcision, but by faith, not by the blood that was shed through circumcision, but by the blood of Jesus that is poured out on the cross. So the application of the gospel is always changing, but the gospel never changes. That's what we learn from this passage. And so for those who have grown up under the heavy weight of moralism or legalism, those who've been told that God loves you based on what you do or how you dress or how you wear your hair or what you eat or drink or what you don't eat or don't drink, those who've been deeply wounded, deeply, deeply wounded by those who would distort and abuse God's word, the gospel sets you free. It removes the burden that says that you have to make yourself good enough. And it says that God loves you because of Jesus. And for those who've grown up well outside of the church, who've sought comfort in substances, who've sought fulfillment through pleasure, who've sought identity through sexuality or gender or philosophy or politics or, or any other thing, for those who have been harmed by churches preaching a false gospel, the gospel also sets you free. It removes the guilt that says you'll never be worthy. And it says you are loved. You are loved because of Jesus. There's one gospel, one gospel that sets us free, that makes us one with God and one with one another. And if we have this freedom in Christ, then we cannot, we cannot go back to slavery. A common experience for, for prisoners um, is that they get to this point 
after they've been in prison for so long that they no longer know how to live outside of prison. Once they're released from prison, they struggle to live in freedom. They struggle to live in the freedom that they've been granted. Because they just, they just don't, they don't know how to function. Um, I read in a research article this week that was based on a, a nine-month study of former prisoners who were living in a, in a halfway house. And it describes some of their experiences. Um, one of them was an inmate named Matt, and he described his experience of moving. He moved back home with his parents after being released from prison. And instead of being happy about his release, instead of being happy about being at home with his parents, he arrived at their house filled with anxiety. The space was too free, too welcoming, too overwhelming. And so after just one week, he moved out of his parents' house and he moved into the halfway house. And he had to pay money. He could live free at his parents' house. He had to pay to live in the halfway house. And, and this is what he said. He said, I paid. I got in. And I never felt so relieved. For the first time, for the first time since I got out of prison, I felt relief. I need that secure jail-like feeling where I don't have free will on everything because I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to live my life yet. I've got to learn how to walk talk and breathe again. And the article also describes a, a scene of a former prisoner who's returning home to the halfway house. And, and it says this, it says, James Cole jumps from a car in a hurry. He hardly looks up, heading straight for a scraggly patch of grass at the end of the halfway house driveway. He stands between the rusted blue dumpster and an old gray, pic and an old gray picnic table, reaching for cigarettes in his pocket. He lights a cigarette he takes a long drag and he just stands there staring out. He turns and he starts to walk. James ambles in a circle, a slow walk to nowhere in particular. Another resident of the halfway house explains what's happening. He says, oh, he's still walking the yard. I remember that feeling. You're free, but you're still walking the yard. Having freedom and living in freedom can be two very different things. The gospel sets us free from our past. But it may not erase the memory of what we once were. But even though it doesn't take away the memory, it does take away its power. God speaks over you that you are loved, that you are his. As we follow Jesus, we learn to walk and talk and breathe as those who've been redeemed. And it can take time for the reality of that freedom to match our experience of freedom. We can be free and still be walking the yard. We can be free and still looking for the forms of, of moralism and legalism that, that tell us that we are doing it right. But adding rules and regulations to the gospel will not help us. It'll just drag us back into slavery, back into a false gospel. So Paul's message to us is very clear. He says, do not yield to the false gospel, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has set you free. And following Jesus is hard. It's hard. And it takes time to learn how to do it. But Jesus himself will lead you. Trust him. Believe in him. 
Let's follow him and nothing else. Please pray with me.